Warning, there is no part of our economic system which works so badly as our monetary and credit arrangements. None where the results of bad workings are so disastrous socially. That was John Maynard Keynes, to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Sean. I'm Aaron. And I'm Franz, Got not a, a co-host. Very <laughs> special non-co-host in the studio tonight. Three-time guest returning champion. First three-time. Yeah, three strikes. Mike Dewar did it oh, three yeah. times. Yeah, the beach episode. It yeah. doesn't really count. The party boat nihilism guys. That- yeah. Tied for first. Tied for, Tied first. for first. That's an honor I'll take. Today we're going to be talking about Something that is really weird if you think about it, but really normal if you don't. Money. Cold hard cash. This even sounds funny. Money's got this like weird grubby like child idea sound to it. <laughs> like I want money. Money, like, money. <laughs> it does it really sounds like a cute little alien's idea of a social relations <laughs> framework. Like, oh, there's this planet, it's called Earth, and they organize all of their economy by this thing called money. That's money. Adorable. <laughs> that's as cute as we are. We're cute aliens. That's a yeah. cute idea. And just think of the things it rhymes with, like bunny, honey, funny. There's nothing serious with that sound. Runny. <laughs> yeah, maybe if you're stretch like crummy. Mm, dummy. Yeah, once you start to get to the M's instead of the N's. <laughs> but even then, they're sort of doofy sounding. I mean, anything that ends with an E sound is going to be like a little uh, Yeah, like a little silly. baby idea. Yeah. of. <laughs> <laughs> If we were a serious species, we'd just call it mun. Absolutely. <laughs> Give me the mun. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by the feud between postmodern monetary theorists and metamodern monetary theorists. We need to reject all grand narratives about money. No, we need to be skeptical of grand narratives, but we also need to create new and useful grand narratives that borrow from the best grand narratives of history. Money only exists as a relationship between people. It doesn't actually exist. That's true. It's a social relationship, but that means it's malleable. So we have a responsibility to try to figure out how to best make that social relationship to serve the ends of helping everyone. You're being too sincere. You look absolutely foolish. Well, I think that you're being too insincere and you look detached and ineffectual. Our economy is inherently detached and insincere. As with anything, there's a multiplicity of angles to evaluate it from, and by evaluating it from multiple angles, we can achieve better conclusions. Money is ephemeral in nature, and I reject any attempt at rigidly classifying it or understanding it conceptually or historically. That nihilism is worthless. It's a danger to you, and it's a danger to others. It's too sincere, you fucking nerd. It is sincere, and I am a nerd. Sure, not all monetary theorists agree how to approach the problem, what the problem actually is, or what the solutions should be. 
But this sectarianism between postmodern monetary theorists and metamodern monetary theorists, and don't even get me started on modern and those other wackos, we all need to work together to fix the money system. And that message of unity is the sponsor of today's show. What is this money stuff? What is money? It's a framework to do exchange with one another, to trade things through an abstraction. So like rather than some sort of like crude barter universe of like, I'm going to give you this boat in exchange for five horses and a chicken or something like that. If you want five horses and a chicken and you have a boat, you transfer it to the medium of exchange and then you're able to transfer the medium of exchange for the, the animals you want. Yeah, yeah, it's a universal... Universal equivalent. Equivalent. Is, yeah. yeah, that's a great word. I was Thank you. Put... I think Marx came up with that, not me. <laughs> but... <laughs> I credit everything Marx said to you. Oh, usually, great. So. <laughs> In addition to it being like a universal, it's purchasing power. Those are two separate concepts that are very like closely intertwined. I think money's function as measuring value and money's function as actually purchasing things is two separate aspects of it. Because just converting everything into a universal number, like this is worth this, this is worth this, doesn't necessarily imply that you can have those numbers mm -hmm. and they're yours and then... Like, if you have enough of them, you get the power to... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another interesting thing is, like, money as power itself. I mean, you could frame it in terms of, like, purchasing power, but it's also just sort of, like, as long as people accept the type of money you're using, there's a real sense of power that comes with, say, having several billion dollars. It's the power to call a horse to your house in five minutes. Mm -hmm. Like, it's... <laughs> It's, a, it's probably a little Is that cheap. A service that's offered. <laughs> well, I think if you got a billion dollars, someone might throw a service together. In pretty five <laughs> minutes. That's. <laughs> I don't think there's horses within five minutes driving distance of here. We'll see. <laughs> Helicopter one in. I can tell that you've never been a billionaire. <laughs> but I mean, even without that sort of ridiculous example of an immediate horse, mm -hmm. which I do actually think, if you have enough money, immediate horses can be arranged. You might have to figure it out ahead of time. Right. Absolutely. Like I'm going to need immediate horses at some point. Yeah, so I want have immediate horses on call from now on. Well, that's how it would have to function. <laughs> so then, then it's like, okay, so I've purchased the power to have immediate horses on call, but then you retain that power going forward. You know, that's a real power. Or if you want to be a person who flies, that is a power. If with enough money, you can be a person that flies. Have we figured out the whole, like, attaching wings to humans thing yet? Is that yeah, I think they've they got, like, those jet suit things. Oh, so yeah. you might have to, like, jump from a high place, but you can fly for a good long while. I think they have a jet. Yeah. yeah, and they've got some jetpacky stuff, you know, like it's not all consumer facing yet, but if you're really rich, you have the power to access non-consumer facing stuff. You think stuff. Elon Musk's using his jetpack? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if he had used a jetpack. No, but yeah, money is, it's obviously not power to do anything. Like you can't do physically impossible things. Mm. But in the society that we exist in, where everything's commodified, where most things are yeah. commodified <laughs> and where most things have a price, it's the power to do all of those things or have all of those things or get any of those services. Two questions that come to mind are like, what is the source of the power of money? Like what gives money power and what are the limitations on that power? Like you kind of talked about that, but where, you know, what are the theoretical limitations? Like how far could the power of money be taken? Yeah, obviously physical reality mm -hmm. would be a big one. Unless we put a whole lot of money into like researching weird 
quantum mechanics shit and figure out how to warp. But yeah. that's, you know, confines that, that's of... Within that's within physical that. reality. Yeah. But, like, I don't think any amount of money is going to make a rock be able to be a radio. <laughs> there's no magic. It's not yeah, magic. exactly. I'm just saying, there's, there's, some, there's some hard physical limits there. <laughs> but you could really make a radio that seems a lot like a rock. Yeah, you could, like, hollow out a rock. You could do lots of stuff. Other potential limits... Ideally, what's illegal would be a limit, but that's not actually usually a limit. Actually, the amount of illegal things you can do is kind of limited by how much money you have to <laughs> hire lawyers and like get out of it, pay for legal protection. On the question of like what gives money its power, I think like a lot of things, it's not actually a relationship between us as individuals and money. It's a relationship between us as individuals and each other in relation to money, that we mm -hmm. all have a shared idea of what a $20 bill represents. Mm -hmm. And the idea of money is what gives money its power. And it's a social relationship between human beings. Yeah, I don't think it can be reduced to just an idea. Like, I think this power is backed up through, like, real institutional power, both of governments and banks and other sorts of capitalist projects and enterprises. Right? Like, money, it, it didn't just, like, come up out of nowhere in the way it currently exists. Like, by accident or without, like, intentional planning and intervention. But it does kind of require, like, an ongoing faith. Like, mm -hmm. belief that... It is what we all think it is, that you can use it for that, that it is worth something. Like, if people stopped believing money was worth things, if, like, 95% of people stopped believing that money would do them any good to get, then a lot of that power would dissipate, if not all. People need money as long as there's taxes. Like, as long as the government, to some extent, is controlling the monetary system and they're the one that sets and collects taxes, you know, they're the ones that get to set and decide how you're able to pay those taxes. And right now it's enforced that you have to pay it in you know, the currency of whatever country you're in. So that reinforces at least some of the power of money. Yeah, it depends which 95% no longer believe in the power <laughs> of money. Because yeah. if the 5% who do believe in the power of money happen to have a bunch of institutional power, then the 95% of people will just be wrong about <laughs> whether or not money has power because there's institutional power behind it yeah it could really crash the economy like if literally didn't believe it was worth anything and it's an absurd situation it just doesn't matter i don't uh, know maybe it's not that absurd no and i think <laughs> it's important to talk about how ideas are like really powerful and like it's, right. it's true that even these institutions it requires francis mentioning central banks and stuff like that taxation like these institutions don't get up in the morning and put their shoes on <laughs> like they're comprised of human beings mm -hmm. and what gives them their functional capacity is human beings and what makes those human beings participate in that functional capacity is a belief in the systems that they're a part of including but not limited to the power of money so like the idea of money is actually a really profound aspect of the whole money equation i think a vast majority of these like human beings people that are you know putting their shoes on in the morning, going to work and work for the government, work in the financial sector, work wherever, aren't the people making these larger decisions within the economy. Like most people are just like sort of like low level bureaucrats that are doing what they're doing because they want to earn a wage. And maybe to some degree they agree or disagree with policy, but they don't really have any power to influence policy. I mean, it's kind of, you know, this bureaucratization, which makes those sorts of structures become so hard to 
influence in any direction. So you could hypothetically have a situation where everyone in these institutions doesn't actually believe in the power of mm-hmm. money, but it's their job to believe in the power of money. So they do their work in bad faith <laughs> and it keeps the system moving. Uh, and, yeah. we, and we reach a point where 100% of people realize it's all bullshit, but then the system keeps churning along, killing the babies. That's you know, kind just of doing the idea thing. of like the banality of evil. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know if it could go that far where literally everyone doesn't believe it, but it would take a very high threshold. Yeah, and it would have to be backed up with actions because if you mm-hmm. were all still acting like you believed it, that's right. a type of belief. That's a. It may not be what's in your head, but it's what you're doing. That's materialism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Point about taxation is interesting because you need to participate in this system if you want to be part of our society. Like, that's the law. Right. There's not really any other, like, existing alternatives where you can kind of just drop out and not live in this money society. Or just like, I'm use sure if you Bitcoin live on a- exclusively. Right. Pretty sure if you live on a commune, like, you still probably have to pay taxes. Yeah. Yeah, there's got to be some limited places in the world where you can completely cut off from money but at great cost right. and the number of people off. that can potentially access that is very limited yeah and, and the more people who try to access it the more likely that it, it would be abolished entirely another thing that comes to mind when i think about like what money is is this, this profound phrasing that i got from robert anton wilson where he referred to money as biosecurity tokens in talking about the horrors of the welfare system and that you're applying for these tokens that you require to live for your sustenance for your basic living and then you need to go to like this board and apply and fill out these forms and then maybe be rejected mm, and it's so all sorry i can't work enough and, and it's, it's all about these tokens <laughs> these tokens that represent your basic needs mm. it's interesting that money is both the unit of exchange for large-scale military purchases, the building the tallest buildings in the world and whatever, and it's the same unit of exchange for people's basic needs. Right. You'd think at the very least we could find a way to take care of people's like basic needs and just say like, oh, well, like maybe we can still have money for the stuff on top of that. You know, at bare minimum, like just these bare necessities should not be like organized by the whims of access to money. Yeah, that's ridiculous. When I've thought about like various gradual potential processes for shifting to a like a socialist society, just taking certain things and removing them from the Mm -hmm. market system, from the money system, like individual, like just food first, like food is no longer a money thing or housing or housing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like some of those basics. And then you can just do it kind of like one thing at a time. And then maybe at the end, it's just like a five minute horse act is the (laughs) only thing left that money's good for or like jetpacks or whatever. Mm. I have to choose. I can either buy five minute horse access (laughs) or a jetpack. I'm not sure. I think what gives money its power, though, is the fact that it is, what did you call it, biosecurity tokens? Because it's something to hold over people's heads. Like, no one would go work for some corporation where they're being exploited and poorly treated and they hate their job, except for the fact that they need these tokens in order to, you know, buy their food, buy their housing, whatever. And so it's almost like it's more powerful to restrict other people's access to money than it is to actually have money. Or at least both of those components are necessary, which is why, like, it would be really hard to decommodify one thing at a time because then, you know, the people that have all the power would probably shut that down (laughs) before it got too far. Oh, sure. They try to shut down everything. That's good. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I'm not saying not possible, just very challenging, very difficult. Yeah, 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 definitely. Today on a Confirmation Bias News special report. Who is the world's poorest person? 
Because if we can find that, I feel like it'll just be the right synecdoche. It'll connect all the dots on the issue of poverty, which often gets ignored under this system, under capitalism. And I mean, trickle-down economics has been disproven. It's time to try trickle-up economics. So you found the world's poorest person. Yeah, and I did this by looking at net worth. So, of course, you include their assets and their debt load. Absolutely. So, you know, when a lot of people think about a poor person, they might think of someone having trouble making their rent or Mm -hmm. maybe even someone who doesn't have enough money to pay rent. They're homeless or living in their car or Mm -hmm. sleeping rough. Denied uh, public support benefits because they don't have a fixed address. And definitely they have a real struggle. But when I talked to them, most of their net worths were in the positive even if it was just a few dollars. Oh, really? Yeah, so actually, the world's poorest person. Let's roll the clip. Here at the world's biggest mansion, where we've been invited inside to speak with the world's poorest man. Alistair Spensworth, first of all, thank you for inviting me into your home. Nice high ceilings, right? You see that painting behind you? Yes. Oh, yeah, what is that? That's an original Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, my. It's worth $65,000. I'm a collector. And I'm clearly a man of great taste. Of course, the reason we came here to talk to you today about Mm -hmm. your struggle about being the world's poorest man, how does that feel? I couldn't imagine. Thank you for saying that. Jeffrey, please, caviar for our guests. Oh, thank you. They do say the poor are more generous than the rich. What's your favorite beast for dinner? No, I don't want to be bad, but do you have giraffe? (laughs) Jeffrey. The giraffe lasagna again for our guest. Thank you. Now, sometimes people look at you and all they see is your $113 billion in personal assets, but they don't take a look to see what your debt load is. Over $163 billion. Your $50 billion in debt. When you compare assets to liabilities, yes. Being at the very bottom, sipping sparkling wine on my yacht, surrounded by friends, celebrating the 15th anniversary of the Iraq War, and they're saying, Alistair's the poorest man on earth. Uh, come over here and give me a noogie on my head. I'm like, ah, stop it. Oh, I'm so sorry. They're, I was bullied when I was in school. I'm not just bullied. I'm bullied by the richest man in the world. It's so humiliating. Yeah. To know they're at the top and I'm at the bottom. They're noogieing me. I'm like, ah, ugh, look at my revenue. Look at my revenue. I'm on a trajectory towards solvency. And they laugh and pull up my pants too high. So it pulls on my groin. I'm like, oh, stop it. That's my life as the poorest man. Yeah, well, this has been an enlightening interview. Thank you so much for doing this with me. And thank you for having the strength to stand up for what's right. So, yeah, that's the clip. I feel inspired. Do you feel inspired, folks? Let's put the thermometer up on the screen. $1 billion. We're going to raise $1 billion tonight. Telethon for the world's poorest man. Our phones are ringing off the hook already. Look at that. Shooting right up. I'm amazed. The public is overcoming their bigotry of what a poor person should be like. They're looking at the numbers. They're realizing just because he has millions of dollars in liquid cash in his bank account doesn't mean he doesn't have a crippling debt burden. We're going to hit a billion within, it looks like, about the next minute and a half. That's incredible. Yeah. Here it comes. Can we do five billion? Folks, this is incredible. Wow, we're going viral all over the world. We just received a tweet from Tokyo, Japan. 
that said, we're watching as well. Oh my God. Now I feel self-conscious all of a sudden. Oh my, yeah, all the eyes of the world on uh, you at once. God. I mean, <laughs> what if I forget I'm, to get to a bigger thermometer? I'm just going to read another tweet. A woman in Costa Rica doesn't have a lot of money, but she's sending $300 today. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Wonderful. Remember, folks, he's way poorer than you. Yeah, that's actually literally true for everyone. There's not a single person who couldn't You're not, give. No one's off the hook. This is a place of miracles, folks. This is a place of dreams. We're already shooting past six billion. Wow. Let's see this thing hit 10 billion. I wasn't expecting anything like this. What is it? He needs 60 billion? Mm -hmm. I think we might be able to pull it off. Oh, producer Alistair's calling in. Oh, patch him in. Yeah, Hello, please. everyone. Hi, Alistair. Wow, Alistair. It's really you. Alistair, how does it feel? I mean, we might bring you out of the red tonight. It, I'm touched. You know, they always say that common people are wretched vermin, sheep to the slaughter. People always say, oh, we can't give them democracy. We have to be in control. They can't be trusted. They're too dumb. It's not our fault. We just have to deal with that. We have to benevolently be their overlords and ensure they don't destroy themselves because they're feeble of mind. Everyone I've ever met always says that. I assume the same for all seven billion of you. And knowing that all seven and a half billion of you are watching, feeling your ears upon my voice over the telephone, whereas I phone into this screen that you're watching, it's the audience. I know that what everyone says all the time isn't true. Common people are decent people. Sure, they have bad taste and they don't know how to deal with their money. And would I trust them with the location of Paradise Valley? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. But I love them. They're my little brothers and little sisters, my tiny, tiny little brothers and sisters. That is such a beautiful sentiment, Alistair, and it is finishing up. Just at the moment, we hit 60 billion. You're out of debt. Uh, great. Okay, well, I gotta go, but it was cool. Oh, that's the doorbell. The, my smoked fish delivery has arrived. I don't want to keep you. You seem Yeah, bye, bye, so. bye. Bye. Bye, okay. So, everyone. Yeah, Alistair... Spensworth, he's still going to have a long road building himself up to something. Now he's yeah, at zero. It's, there's still a lot of debt load, folks. Keep it coming, please. Let's get him in the black. Keep it coming. Here's another tweet. I just sent everything I have to make this man in the black again. It might even seem like Alistair was right. They don't know how to deal with their money. You know, it sounds great. I give you everything I have, but it might technically be very little. Yeah, well, like that's maybe another they point. Three hundred dollars yeah. to their name. In which case, like, thank you, but but I mean, it's not much actually. Overall, oh, it's still coming. Yeah, I think that'll keep taking up all night. But our billion hour is okay. Over. So, folks, we're gonna jump into a regularly scheduled episode of Seriously Wrong, but for the rest of the episode, there is a number at the bottom of the screen that you can call. And on the side of the screen, there is a thermometer that continues to grow to new billions throughout the rest of the episode. So that's happening visually. Just remember that. Back to the show. Something about money and sort of economics more broadly is it's so often about like proportionality, right? Like what makes you rich is having someone else be poor. So like you raise the minimum wage, then the prices of all basic commodities, at least alleged in theory, will rise in relation to whoever has the lowest amount of money in society, thereby driving up prices for everyone. But yeah, there's actually evidence to show that the inflationary effect of minimum wage increases is negligible or non non-existent. But it's sort of like a common sense idea about like in the quantity theory of money or mm -hmm. whatever. Withholding the basics for someone in some sense is making other people richer. It's like a really bizarre mm -hmm. nightmare.
Yeah, because if everyone has ten billion dollars, like we're like, oh, Elon Musk has billions of dollars. He can have jetpacks and stuff. But it's like, or, if everyone had that, it wouldn't mean everyone can just get a jetpack because they there actually aren't that many jetpacks. Or it means everyone could be a billionaire. Everyone can have a billion dollars. Everyone has equal access to a jetpack library. That right. makes sense. Yeah, and you just get to keep your million dollars. You never have to spend a have penny spend it, of yeah. it. <laughs> You just accumulate infinitely. In it's a utopia. capitalist dream. <laughs> yeah, we don't abolish money. We just like let people keep accumulating. There's nothing to spend it on, but you yeah. just, your, your account keeps getting It's kind of just a fun little game on the side. Yeah. <laughs> if people aren't spending, where does the accumulation come from? <laughs> uh, interest. You could do loans, maybe. Loans uh, to who? For what purpose? <laughs> well, see, that this is money operating as a measure of value uh, without being purchasing power or a means of circulation. I can't even wrap my head around that being a thing it would have to operate on like a labor or time voucher basis so like in a lot of like labor time voucher systems that are theorized about or have been attempted to be put into place money is just kind of created by the act of doing labor because the idea that underlies a lot of them is that labor creates value and so if you are doing labor you are creating value and so like that is what's creating the money so then this token is generated to represent that labor, then you can spend that on the equivalent amount of someone else's labor and it kind of disappears. So by spending it, it goes away because the other money was created when the other person did the labor. Wait, why does it so, go away? Because you give it to the other person, then they have. Yes. Yeah, so person A makes jetpacks and person B makes speedboats. So person A takes three hours to make one jetpack. And right. so they're paid three labor bucks. Person B spends three hours to create a speedboat. And so they're paid three labor bucks. So then person A wants to buy a speedboat. And so they put their three labor bucks into this like communal like time bank. Oh, oh And then okay. they get to just take the speedboat. Okay, and then so the person you... with the speedboat wants to, you know, get the right. one, you, so you know, you, whatever you, else. You don't pay other people yeah. for things. You pay back to the uh-huh. from whence it came right. or whatever. Because yeah. you, you get the money when you make it, not when you sell it. Because as right. it exists now, you get the money... Yeah, the profit right, has to be right, realized right. through the market. Right, right. But this is kind of a conception of money without a market, I guess. That's really interesting. Yeah, what's that called? I don't know. I like I haven't read a whole lot of specifics about this, but it's drawing from ideas of like labor vouchers or time vouchers or time banking. It kind of goes all the way back to like Proudhon, like the very first anarchist was like a mutualist and believed very heavily in like the labor theory of value. And so thought that like this form of I don't want to say currency because it doesn't have currency. The idea of currency is that it has a current and continues to travel. So this sort of like currency-less money, current-less money, whatever. He was an advocate for, and then like in modern times, there's participatory economics is kind of this leftist. Pericon, yeah. yeah. Robin Hanel and Michael Albert are two kind of dominant theorists within that. And I, they talk about that a lot. I remember watching YouTube videos about Pericon like mm-hmm. a long time ago, and I don't think I understood it until you just explained it now because oh, yeah. I didn't get like how the like where it goes or the like the problem with that is someone could potentially just like put a whole lot of labor into a whole lot of bullshit that no one wants yeah there has to be like a deciding on what counts like I'm gonna make like all these like statues out of feces or something and 
I spent 40 hours making those feces statues, and you're telling me I can't take all these pies home? It's like a nope. giant statue of a piece of feces made from many pieces of feces. Yeah. It's the gestalt of feces. It's a one feces that's more than the sum of its feces parts. But I think the reason we started having this conversation is the idea that you could accumulate these like labor vouchers but not ever have to spend them, right? right? right so right. you could create your jetpacks or your feces statues and get money, get money but then you still have access to all these things through the Yusufark library system. Right. So it's just like you're just accumulating money for like ragging rights of like, oh, look how much stuff I made. Yeah, it would just be a measure of contribution yeah. at that point. Just a weird utopian idea, but if you wanted to introduce the idea of actual value of like or like socially mediated value like it's like what we do under the current sort of market system is what determines whether or not your feces statue is worth anything is whether anyone decides to pay you for it it's, yeah it's the answer to the labor theory of value is no it's subjective value right. whatever someone w is willing to pay you for it so like the labor theory of value originally is like from like classical capitalist economists and marx adopted it but shifted it and so he has the concept of socially necessary labor Socially necessary, that's a little vague. It's depending on social context, but it has to be something that someone would want. Right. Or it would have to be something that someone could be convinced to want through like marketing. And because right. that is a significant factor under capitalism and how demand is created. So the demand thing, so just yeah. the demand piece to the disappearing money, creating money, mm -hmm. hypothetical different paradigm, non currency, but still money, is that what if the money that you generate or like the exchange? tokens that you generate through an action is always sort of colored by the action that brought it forward. And then there's a directly democratic system where people vote for what they actually value and want in society. So like poo money's worth less than <laughs> yeah, jetpack money. Poo statue money probably would be <laughs> worth very little because everyone would say no, like I vote against that. I so you're d democratizing the time voucher disappearing money system or just democratizing what's considered would you say socially necessary? Yeah. Socially necessary. Yeah, because that's always going to be a judgment call to some I mean, extent. Right now it's kind of determined by, you know, market forces. I'm right. putting in square quotes because, you know, whatever that means. But, you know, the logic of the capitalist market. Let the people decide whether or not my poo statues are worth the time I put into. Oh, okay, they did. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I thought they were pretty cool, but. It's a statue of poo made of poo. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> the problems I could potentially foresee with that would be, I mean, you know, right now there's a degree to which like there are decisions made over like what types of labor are valued or not valued. And that's not being done in a democratic way. But there's a lot of types of labor that should be valued that are currently devalued. So currently, you know, like a lot of care labor, hmm. um, a lot of like janitorial labor, like a lot of like really necessary, but low paid. The most necessary labor is like typically the most low paid labor. Yeah. I don't think that problem would be nearly as bad if things were decided democratically, but there's always sort of the risk that, you know, the broader community wouldn't value everything that needs to be valued. Like something that only a small portion of the population needs, but it's really necessary for that small portion of the population. I mean, anything that people with disabilities need, for example, like mobility aids or medications. Right, right, or... right. You, what do we need wheelchairs for? I have legs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's not socially necessary labor. <laughs> so, well. I mean, this is getting into a deeper question about democracy and direct democracy right. and building a democratic society. But yeah, on votes when it comes to wheelchairs, you give people 
who need wheelchairs a weighted vote. You have a, a mixture between proxy voting and weighted voting based on expertise or level of concern. Exactly. You could work out a sort of like striking close to a perfectly democratic system, moving closer to a perfectly democratic system. I have total faith that's possible. Not yeah, to I... mention the existence of expertise and like these are things that should be weighted in a real multi-dimensional democratic system you don't want to have our wheelchairs important and then have a, a vote from everyone in society on an equal basis hopefully they still come to the conclusion they are for christ's sake i mean please non-wheelchair people admit that it's pretty dope that it's like yeah but there's things that are less visible and less what's the word like obvious like if you don't yeah. if you're yeah not if you're a person who doesn't need a wheelchair you, you get why they're necessary mm -hmm. for people but other things you might like just be an idiot about mm -hmm. even now it's probably a really common sentiment of like why do you need a ramp here like can't wheelchair people just never visit this restaurant? <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't think that any of those potential issues I brought up are like insurmountable like problems with democracy or democratizing money by any means. I just wanted to point them out as like things to be conscious of when you're trying to create like a good democratic system that takes those issues into account. Mm -hmm. well, potential yeah. pitfalls. Yeah, especially since the whole history of money and economics has had this huge blind spot towards like labor that's been coded as feminine. Mm -hmm. I read this great book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which is about <laughs> like, among other things, how Adam Smith, the sort of like founder of modern economics, was living with his mom. His mom was making him all his food. His mom was like cleaning his room for him, making his bed. And he's writing this high-minded economic treatise right. about how you know rational men making choices <laughs> and stuff like that. And just never mentions the idea at all that it like takes work to make dinner while that was happening for him. And yeah, so it's a good book. It, it tackles like the misogyny and economics intersection in a couple different ways. Adam Smith sounds like the that century equivalent of some like incel who lives in their mom's basement, like writing like polemics on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, except he got... Uh, he got big. Yeah, he got big. He made, he made it big. <laughs> the year is 1776. Adam Smith is writing political comments in his mother's basement, and he is getting hungry. So, so hungry. 38-year-old Adam's stomach is growling. Mom, I asked you to knock before you come in. Well, I brought you your dinner. I'm just slaving away on these political comments. You wouldn't know anything about you that. You look so pale. I think you should go outside. No. You All these political comments, it's making you mean. You used to be my nice little boy. Mom, I can't go outside. Get the sun on your face. Let it light it's up my boy's beautiful face. not productive activity happens, Mom. Right here in my study where I'm writing these political comments. Don't you know anything about productive activity? Have you washed today? These political Wash. comments can certainly wait for you to wash. That is not the basis of the wealth of nations, Mom. Listen, imagine that there is a rational man. He wants to maximize his productive output. Does this no, man wash? No, listen, don't interrupt. Does the he rational wants to, man wash? He wants to maximize his productive output in order to increase the wealth of his nation. So no, of course he doesn't wash. That's not productive. Oh my, well. You maybe, wouldn't understand anything about productive. Maybe you open a window then. I think it lets some air Women in. don't know anything about production. Well, I made you this dinner, and I've made you all your dinners for many years. Doesn't matter. It's what women are supposed oh, to do. Oh, that's not 
production? No, that's not part of the economy. Oh, well, you know your political comments better than I do, I guess. So Yeah, I invented economy. Oh, I, I know, sweetheart. I just think sometimes that you spend too much time with your nose in those comments and you should get outside a little bit. That's just what I think. And I'm just your mother. You eat up your dinner. A, a growing boy needs his food. And if you're going to be thinking those comments... Well, you still might be growing a little bit. And, well, whatever age you are, you're going to need food to keep going. You can't write that without food. And I spent all day on this, and I think you're really going to like it. Okay, whatever, Mom. Leave the dinner here and just get out of my study. Okay, say what you want, but you wouldn't be able to write without me. Oh, but wait, would you grab me a piece of cake from the kitchen? Yeah, and do you have any more clothes for me to clean? Oh, yeah, that pile's all dirty. Okay, I'll bring you the food, and just do do consider opening the window at least that adam smith grew up to become adam smith one of the most important men in the history of economics and he earned every bit of that (laughs) (laughs) social justice warriors trying to take down the statues of adam no he he paved the way for all of us i'm sorry I lost my temper in the narration booth, but know what? Some things are more important than being an impartial and disinterested narrator, okay? Back to the show. Hey, friends, do you mind telling us a little bit about the development of money? Sean, I just told you about that. What? Like, just before we started recording this podcast? Yeah, but no, you have to say it when you're recording. Well, I I did record it. Do you not remember me saying that? What, you recorded it? You remember that, Aaron, right? No. You weren't listening either? I thought I was listening. What Don't microphones worry. did we... Okay. I got it. I recorded it. I'll just wheel it out. It's on this tape right here. Oh, the squeaky wheels. Someone should oil those damn wheels. They're not my wheels. I yeah, mean, no, it's not a criticism. And you're you. recording. It's a criticism of us. Where it's, yeah. yeah, this well, is Well, and manufactured obsolescence. You know, wheels shouldn't squeak like that. Sorry, do you need the tape player or the record player? I got both on here. I have it on both. Which which do you prefer? So you recorded it to multiple formats right before we started yeah. recording that I episode? actually, I have it on a wax <laughs> cylinder. It's a type of audio transmission that hasn't been used in like... Oh, no, no. We do have one of those. Let you... me wheel it out. Great. Okay, awesome. Let's play it on there. See? That's a smooth wheel. Just saying. Definitely no squeaks. Yeah, I guess it's that button. Okay, I'll just go ahead and press it right now. So, friends, would you teach us a little bit about the history of money? I'll tell you a story. I'll spin a tale. Oh, please. Yeah, I love stories. I think an interesting place to start would be maybe reference the last podcast I was on. Mm. We were talking about early capitalism and sort of late feudalism that led into capitalism. And one of the things we talked about was in England specifically, the transition from tribute being taken in kind. So feudal lords taking, you know, crops that serfs grew and whatnot as their form of payment into a tribute in money, which was kind of what forced peasants to start using money in the first place. Right. Because before that, they didn't really have to deal in money a whole lot. There might be some like local markets where they could exchange goods on a limited basis, but money wasn't the sort of like integral central part of their economic lives in the same way before it was like enforced through this feudal state. Right, right. And so that's a thread we can kind of follow throughout the history of money is this idea that it is organized through these sort of bureaucratic, hierarchical, and centralized structures way more often than it's 
ever directed by any sort of actual free market or laissez-faire principles. Mm -hmm. But that has been the dominant conceptualization of money throughout history, is that it's organized sort of spontaneously through, you know, the free action of individuals like partaking in this like equal exchange. I think it was in Debt by Graeber. Mm -hmm. He he talked about an origin of the modern idea of money being like a group needs to pay their soldiers, mm-hmm. so they pay them in a type of token. But then in order to make sure that they can actually spend those tokens among people who are producing, you have the threat of the fact the soldiers are there to make demands of taxation from the shopkeepers, from the producers, in the currency that you issue to pay your own soldiers. Mm-hmm. So as a result, in order to have the right money to pay back the government that's threatening you with these soldiers, you need to do business with the soldiers to get them to pay you their soldier money for your horses so then you can pay your taxes without being threatened by violence. Hence, one potential origin of the modern idea of money is connected not only to a central power, but a military and also the idea of taxation. So it's really funny to look at the sort of free market mythology in that context when the incentive structure that brought people into the money system as we think of it was almost certainly the threat of violence if you were unable to pay tax dollars in money that was created to pay soldiers. Yeah, and I, my area of relative expertise is definitely in, well, like 1694 to 1914 to be specific about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't have that 1693 knowledge? No, not at all. But no. <laughs> 1693. What? what the fuck happened that year? Who fucking knows? 1721. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> that year specifically. So like in general, you know, there's various histories of money in different contexts and different places in the world. So I'm sure even before these sort of like feudalistic or tributary you know, warlords, whoever, were creating this currency through taxation and military spending. You know, there's probably small-scale kin groups and tribes that, you know, existed within these larger trade routes. They clearly developed some medium of exchange a lot of the time. Sometimes it was organized through barter, but in a lot of cases around the world, there was some sort of universal equivalent. The Aztecs used cocoa beans. Exactly. And there's lots of examples. (laughs) There's lots of examples like that you can cherry pick from all over the world. And I want to like get that out of the way, kind of, because I don't know a whole lot about that. Right. Since money came to be something that's like what we think of it now, it was like it comes from this relationship of taxation and soldiers and enforcing this one system on people using government. Yeah, I'd say like through states through governments or nation states yeah and i I think like the states as they existed prior to capitalism changed a lot in order to be like capitalist states and states that support capitalist economics and like necessarily so like the way money functioned and the way that the state organized money and conceptualized money and tried to treat it changed really drastically with the rise of capitalism but because economists exist (laughs) and economists are not always the most well connected to reality or how the world actually functions. <laughs> I can say this as someone who studied economics. Are you saying they're not scientists? Like yeah, natural I- <laughs> physical scientists? I'd say that economists, classical and neoclassical economists are definitely the pseudoscientists of capitalist ideology more than like any, I think any sort of existing social science within like this capitalist framework, the ones that are really insistent that their social science is a hard science with these hard predictive abilities and these models. This is the part of the graph where the people must die. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite part of the graph. (laughs) That's why I got into economics. 
People must die. Ooh. I mean, Kane said, in the long run, we're all dead. So he, you know, was already taking a stab at that graph. The, the, Kane? Uh, yeah, John Maynard Kane's. Oh, oh yeah. Kane's, yeah. A lot of the times with this stuff that's treated as, yeah, like hard science, treated as like high standard of proof, high standard of certainty, and we like make our government policy based on it and shit. And then you're like, but ultimately, like, what's the proof for what you're saying? Like, let's break it down to first principles. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll break it down to first principles. Imagine I have an apple. No, wait, I don't want to imagine you have an apple. Like, <laughs> you don't have an apple. <laughs> is there something like, that you measured or something? Like, no, imagine a rational man has an apple. I'm like, I'm not imagining a fucking rational man having an apple, dude. Like, tell I don't me think what... I've ever met a rational man. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's like, what's your hard evidence? Here, let me tell you a story. Like, that's literally what you're describing. Like, telling stories. It's like, which it's is great. A, like, I love stories. It's but a great communication not, tool, but it's yeah, not science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's like it's a kind a of magnifying glass. a grid world where everyone is making perfectly rational decisions are you with me uh no, no. <laughs> you've lost me already it's not even a good story you want irrational characters you know you want that tension of the irrationality you're like how can i get into this story if the man with the apple is going to be perfectly rational i want to see the fingerprints of the trauma of his development you know i want to see him be a complex character with this apple but i mean this i think this is why like ayn rand novels are so bad and dry right like we're just lucky that adam smith never took a stab at writing fiction (laughs) (laughs) but i mean capitalists start with these first principles of you know the market is free the most rational way to organize our economy and our society and our production is through free market laissez-faire government hands-off economics which has been historically in relation to money been actually an impeding factor on the development of capitalism because their scientific principles, their core first principles that they start off with are so fundamentally in contradiction with the way that the capitalist economy actually works, let alone the whole world that exists outside the capitalist economy. They're just such bad scientists. You know, it's not the sexiest part of science, but science being disinterested and testing things without hope to come to a certain conclusion, not being based on principles that are deeply felt like it should be free like that's a good part about science the disinterest the distance that that sort of stuff like that's what makes it functional and that's what makes it have good data and i know you can never technically get rid of bias but you should fucking try if you're in science absolutely and look what happens when you don't 2008 financial crisis oh we'll we'll get to that we'll get to that we're couple centuries before that right now but oh, trust yeah. Let's me start we'll lead up to that all the way back at the yeah. beginning okay so i'm gonna explain to you why 16 1693 i'm gonna explain 1693. to you 1694 was when the bank of england was founded so now i feel like i'm gonna be held to a very high standard of science but i'm you never i'm rejecting that i'm rejecting yeah that but historically sort of these factors of actually existing capitalism that came into conflict with these principles of free market economics were like the wage labor relationship that exists in our capitalism, the market economy, and this imperative of endless accumulation. So I can kind of dive into why those three were contradictory a bit more. So the wage labor relationship. So we talked about earlier in, you know, a theoretical time banking economy, you get paid when you create your product or your commodity, whatever it is. Like that is when the value is created. Under capitalism, value may be created through that process of laboring, but it has to still be realized by selling that commodity. And so if a worker in a factory is working eight hours a day to produce widgets, 
and they're paid a total of $50 for that day. And the owner of that factory can then go on and sell those widgets for $100. They will make a profit if they can sell all their widgets, but they have to actually take them to the market in order to realize that profit. I'm using widgets because that's what like economists say. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it goes back to this whole like fake site. Like, I'm going to tell you a story about widgets. What are widgets? Well, they're widgets. (laughs) Whatever. That removal of detail from economic storytelling is sort of an interesting like ideological invention because you're telling the story about the creation of a product, but it doesn't really matter what product it is or what purpose it serves. Like, and within the economic realm, they never want to look at what the purpose it's serving mm-hmm. because that would imply that there might be different categories of things being produced that are more or less important or more or less fundamental or more and less egregious to produce it makes a difference if the widgets are like a little usb fan that you plug into your phone and it gives you a tiny little fan that's a useless piece of shit like i don't know sounds kind of cool no one ever uses that garbage <laughs> even if they buy it trust me i got eight of these widgets Maybe I only think they're cool because I've never bought one. But they did have value, even if you never used them because you bought them. They have exchange value, but not use value. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Whereas, like, producing to meet people's basic needs is, like, really, really different. So it just occurs to me the widget factory is taking out precisely the details that most matter in real life. Like, what is being produced and for what purpose? Like, economics doesn't speak on those things. Well, all of that nonsense aside, can I get back to the science? Yeah, you get back to the objective (laughs) historical development. But the idea that the economy has to be organized based on these rational laissez-faire principles led to the conclusion that the government can't have any say or control over, like, how money functions at all. Early on, it was even sort of, there was skepticism around even, like, minting coins. And then the idea was that okay, the government can mint coins, but it's only sort of like you're only ensuring that this gold coin is actually the amount that it says it is. Like you're not giving this gold coin value. You're just regulatory. Like, yeah, it's certified. Like I promise that this is this much. And so, I mean, there was a period of time that that was even sort of rejected and seen as too much of a government interference. Right, exactly, in the creation of money. And then- Money got so deteriorated because physical coins deteriorate over time. So all of a sudden, you know, what was one pound, if we're talking about in England, whatever, right. is significantly less than a pound in its actual physical weight of gold. But you still think it's a pound because that's what it says on it because there's still coins being minted. So there had to be sort of this centralized process of the government maintaining minted coins. So that was kind of, you know, an encroachment on this these free market principles. And then even with the government regulating coins, there's this idea that its value was still rooted in the pure innate value of this gold that was produced through this exchange of labor and the exchange of goods. The government didn't set that value as natural and determined and by these economic principles right, of the labor theory of value yeah. and whatnot, which are taken as first principles like that are just unquestionable. So then with the rise of capitalism, there was these three factors that I mentioned. And the first one being wage labor. So with, you know, the value of the widgets not being realized until later on, you can't pay your worker in this profit you haven't realized yet. You haven't earned this gold until after you had need to pay your worker. And so there's the need to use like token currency. Like this will be the means by which I purchase your labor. But that purchase will actually be settled and paid for later when you go and exchange this token for gold from a bank. And so gold money still existing and still being in circulation and still being used as the basis. But one degree of 
government intervention of like, okay, we'll maintain this paper currency and we'll ensure that if you bring in this paper currency or tokens of some sort that you will get your gold in exchange for. And that's what's going to determine the value of It's money. like one layer of abstraction mm-hmm. away from gold. It's like it's it represents gold. It's not actually gold, but it means gold. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then the second concept was the market economy, which beyond just an economy which contains markets in it is an economy that is directed primarily by the market. And so, you know, under capitalism, most of our social relations are in some way mediated through these market processes. Like we talked about earlier, like our basic necessities have to be accessed through the market. But this sort of all-contained and all-encompassing market economy was not ever something that just happened to come into existence on its own. There was a process by which all other forms of social relations were violently repressed and socially frowned upon. So, you know, people that used to live on the land and be able to access their own means of subsistence were basically regulated and forced into joining the market economy. Right. You have to pay rent if you want to mm-hmm. keep living here. So then you have to sell some of the things you may. Yeah. yeah. And if you resist, we're sending our armies in. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, they always send the armies when you resist. <laughs> <laughs> it's a damn shame. So then this creation of that government created fiat or paper currency token money is one example of this sort of necessary state intervention, historically necessary state intervention in like the creation of capitalism. I just laughed at the term historically necessary. I mean, yeah. Which is like the kulaks. It's historically necessary (laughs) to disband the Soviets. I'll clarify clarify what I mean by that. I mean necessary to the way that history developed as it did. Mm -hmm. Necessary Um, for the outcome that we're at now. Like other things could have happened at that point of history, but then we wouldn't have led to the same end point. And I think like the final... The thing that I mentioned was this need for endless accumulation. That's like an imperative that's hard-coded into capitalist competition and capitalist ideology of you have to produce more than your competitors. You have to produce cheaper and you have to sell your goods for less or else you're not going to be able to sell your goods. You'll go bankrupt and you won't be a capitalist anymore. And so all the successful capitalists, all the existing capitalists have to abide by these imperatives to continue to expand basically indefinitely. And that's just not possible when the monetary supply is finite. So when your money is based on gold reserves, there is a finite amount of gold in the world. Um, And so you can't continue to grow the money reserves and the amount of money in circulation with a finite commodity. Right. Like businesses can't just keep getting bigger and having more and more money stored in their bank accounts Mm -hmm. if there's a limit to how much money there is. Right. Yeah. And like the argument against that that came, I think, most notably from David Ricardo, who I will get into a little bit more in a second, was this quantity theory of money that basically said, no, what I just said is wrong and dumb because the value of money will change to be proportional to how much money there needs to be. So like, you know, even if there is a finite amount of gold in circulation, gold will just continue to be broken into smaller and smaller denominations yeah, so that a, it can be spent more. There's a finite number of Bitcoins. So right. like a big yeah. coin is worth a shit ton of money and you just mm-hmm. use tiny fractions. Of, yeah. But how stable is the value of Bitcoin? <laughs> right. And that was kind of exactly the problem with trying to enforce this quantity theory of money and this gold basis of money was that it was incredibly unstable. Right. All of a sudden your gold's worth way less and you're like, right. oh shit. And that's like a really fucking stressful to like 
either try and run a business or be a wage worker trying to feed their family. Right. Like, you know, if you're making $15 an hour today and $15 an hour tomorrow, but tomorrow that $15 an hour is worth dirt, but it was way too fast of a turnaround for you to renegotiate a different contract with your boss or whatever. Right, right, right. You're just fucked for that day. Yeah, I think if the if the value of money was fluctuating so much that you couldn't really like rely on prices remaining constant and you, you couldn't rely that your wage was more or less constant. I mean, the value of the Canadian dollar fluctuates in relation to the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. and sometimes is more or less expensive to buy things from Amazon or whatever. But if it was fluctuating so much that you couldn't count on it, like that would really do a lot to make everyone agree that money's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And like they would agree pretty fast too. Like if you had been saving for like months and months and working and stuff like that, and then all of a sudden it was just like all worthless, like that is... That is like a revolutionary, Mm. I want to use the word Tinder, but it's been... (laughs) Kindling? Yeah, that's some revolutionary kindling. So those were kind of like the three problems with maintaining the way money was. So the Bank of England is originally established in 1694. They began on some limited basis to operate credit money, but it's always backed by gold in this way that I described before. So even though it's like the monetary system is slightly more flexible and adaptable, you know, token money can increase and shrink to make those shifts in the value of gold less drastic. Like it kind of distributes the burden of that changing prices a little bit across the economy, but it doesn't actually alleviate that problem. And so in 1797, when England was involved in the Napoleonic Wars, There was economic crisis where there was all of this expenditure going towards funding the war. The government was like running out of gold reserves to spend on things like they were trying to raise taxes. But back during that time, it just like took so long to like physically go out and get taxes. And also the people didn't have a whole lot more money to give in taxes. There was just like this real shortage of money because when money is tied to like a single commodity like gold, it's possible that you could just like completely run out of it. And so there was a bank run where basically everyone like lost faith in the government's currency. They thought it wasn't going to be worth anything else. This kind of goes back to money just being an idea, like money being something people trust. And all of a sudden the power of taxation is being incredibly limited because they've just basically run that well dry. And so people have no more reason to have faith in money and there's a mass movement to withdraw gold from reserves, but there wasn't actually enough gold for people to withdraw. And if all the money were to be withdrawn from banks, that kind of shuts down like a lot of yeah. the economy that relies on banks to function. Yeah, because banks use that money to lend mm-hmm. out and do other stuff with. Right. And so the government passed the Bank Restriction Act, which for a time period halted the exchangeability of paper money for gold, which meant like if you have paper money, that's all you got now. That's so you have to do. You can't get money from us for it. Right. Like from private banks, maybe, but not from the central bank, which serves as that lender of last reserve and a lender to banks. So if banks can't get money from the central bank, then they can't give out money. It was a big shock in the economy at the time or in economic thought because it completely threw out of whack all of these like ideas people had about where the basis of like the value of money came from. People just seem like the value of money comes from gold. Like that's the only way it can function. It's only ever will function. And all of a sudden money's not exchangeable for gold. And yet things kind of keep working. Keep working. Yeah, like keep it's a little unstable for the first few years. There's like a, you know, getting into the flow of things. Like how's this whole like non-convertible paper money thing work? 
And then eventually the money supply kind of evened out and it just, it stopped fluctuating and it became pretty stable. So did that act that was just implemented because of necessity in the Napoleonic Wars go on like forever? No, that, okay. it's, so it was established in 1799. There was varying degrees of crisis until like, 1809-1810, the economy was pretty much restabilized by 1814. So that law was repealed and replaced by something different in 1821. My good friend, not my good friend, uh, <laughs> capitalist economist and member of parliament, David Ricardo, he was, you know, one of these classical economists who believed really heavily in, you know, the labor theory of value, free market economics, the labor theory of value, and gold as a commodity as the basis of the value of money. Not him solely, obviously. I'm not trying to make like a great man of history argument. He's just kind of significant because he was like writing the economic papers that are like right, right. still read and cited by and large. And he was also like a political figure who was like pushing for these things within parliament. But essentially at this point is when the gold standard first gets implemented, which is an attempt at synthesizing and alleviating these contradictions between, you know, the restrictions of commodity money and this idea that unrestrained government-controlled money is like government intervention and inherently unstable. So what's the gold standard mean? It operated in a, such a way that banknotes represented value insofar as they're backed by a certain amount of gold by the Bank of England, and the Bank of England could be the sole creator of money. So before this, you know, when there was gold reserves and some token monies, there was a lot of different currencies like Local banks kind of create their own currency and say, this is exchangeable for this. The Bank of England itself had multiple different kinds of like bonds or loans that then kind of circulated as money. But there wasn't sort of like a unified like the Bank of England is the sole creator of money and right. we will determine how much this money is worth. And it promised to always exchange gold coin or gold bullion for that amount of money you bring into us. So trying to maintain that basis of value of money with a more government control sort of baked can, into it. Can they just kind of decide how much gold is worth how much money whenever they want in this? Or is it's it supposed like, to be based on it... like the market value. Okay. So they're kind of responsible for determining that. Right. So in a like they can't do whatever they mm -hmm. want, but they could be like, you know, we have less gold now, so the money's worth slightly less gold or something mm -hmm. like that. So the gold standard kind of necessitated that the convertibility of this paper currency wasn't actually attempted. It relied on the fact that people would use and trust this paper currency. Because if too many people lost trust in it, there'd just be more bank runs. People would try and exchange it all at once. There wouldn't be enough to go out. The bank's vaults would be drained and the economy would come to a halt. Right. Which happened lots during this time period. Like this is one of the most like unstable periods in sort of the history of capitalism as far as economic recessions and halts in, in productive capacity, like for these completely dumb reasons of uh, everyone lost trust in money all at the same time, which means we can't do anything anymore and people are going to starve. <laughs> which is like that logic, like we lost faith in money, so now the economy has to come to a halt. It's a cult. Yeah, it's a cult. It's a cult of capitalism. It's just, it's such an irrational basis to organize society around, framed in this very, like, rationalist sense. Yeah, I really take for granted that, like, money's going to keep working tomorrow and everything's going to be normal. But it makes sense, like, just thinking a little bit about the historical context, why so many people predict that capitalism will fail. Or, like, it just seems like such a fragile, weird system when you, like, 
peek under the hood of what's going on here. Yeah. Like not even to mention the environmental impact of it, but even if we had infinite material resources to pull on to keep capitalism working, it's still like its internal logic just seems like it's just like shuddering on the end, edge of collapse. Yeah, right. even with the like relative stability of all of our lifetimes, we haven't been experiencing like these massive crashes in the value of our own currencies mm-hmm. and stuff. There's still quite a lot of like volatility and like right. market 2008 we're building up towards. Right, yeah. Yeah, so this gold standard operates internally to England. Similar sorts of standards are implemented throughout most of sort of like the capitalist economies of primarily Europe, but also North America until around like the 1890s, there's kind of consolidating this sort of international gold standard where there's agreed upon gold markets between these capitalist countries so that exchanges can happen cross borders. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be a real nightmare because like we have all these countries being like, our dollar is worth this much gold or our pound is worth this much gold. And then like, yeah, figuring out a way to interface all of those different currencies in a global market where they're all interchangeable it's mind-boggling that allowed for international trade but like money was still pretty like nationalistically organized in 1914 so only like a couple decades after this sort of like international gold standard was consolidated you know this is obviously during world war one britain is pretty strapped for cash and their gold standard collapses you know there's essentially you know run on money too big for the gold standard to support and absorb. And because its gold standard was kind of the basis of the international gold standard, the entire gold standard collapses essentially in 1914. In the time period between 1914 and 1933, there were attempts to kind of bring the gold standard back, but they were never as robust as they were before 1933. And in 1933, that was when the Bretton Woods Agreement happened. Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods. (laughs) And that was an agreement that formally abandoned the gold standard and replaced it with the gold exchange standard, which was a standard where the U.S. dollar would be tied to an amount of gold reserves and other world currencies would be tied to the U.S. dollar or exchangeable to the U.S. dollar. So it's like the gold exchange standard is like this weird proxy, like the U.S. dollar is tied to gold and everything else is kind of tied to the U.S. dollar. Yeah, it's get, getting more and more layers of abstraction yeah. away from the actual mm-hmm. gold. How did U.S. finagle that out? How come they get to, <laughs> how come they get to be the, that's well, probably a big question. Yeah, there's lots of theories about that. World hegemony and all that fun stuff. The Illuminati did it, is what we'll say for this episode. I think it's just (laughs) the other countries all saw that they had a lot of freedom and they wanted to reward that somehow. (laughs) Yeah, they were like, thank you for our freedom, United States. You should be in the center of the map. (laughs) The next kind of major event or change in the monetary system happens in 1973, which is when the gold exchange standard is like officially and fully abandoned even though it kind of had been barely functioning to that point, it kind of, in a lot of ways, only fully existed on paper and not really in practice. But this is kind of like the year all the conspiracy theorists yeah, point to. The, the Ron Paul people are really yeah. mad about this mm-hmm. year. Because now money is not based on gold at all. But Where the- are you going to get the gold to pay for those wars? <laughs> right. And the, the argument that I would say of why that's absolutely ridiculous is we see throughout this history of capitalism gold being nothing but a limiting factor to the capitalist economy and this idea that gold has to be the basis of value or, you know, gold is really a stand-in for labor, right? This idea that gold is based on the amount of labor that it took to produce it and that's determined by the market forces, whatever. That whole assumption 
has been an incredibly limiting factor to the development of capitalism. So all these like free market libertarian capitalists are stuck in the same mindset as like fucking Adam Smith how many centuries ago? And there's like, yeah, Adam Smith was right. Not going to adopt anything since then. Because even, you know, modern day orthodox economists don't want to return to the gold standards. They just see these fucking wing nuts. Right, right, right. Because so- they recognize that it's actually bad for capitalism to do that. And when actually existing capitalism comes into conflict with these like first premises, like actually existing capitalism is usually prioritized. That's an interesting way to frame it. Like they're making all these sort of economic theories. They're in these laboratories of tiny little grid world stories about rational people. And then just in the background, like actual capitalism is just roaring. And then every once in a while, like capitalism destroys one of their little <laughs> stories and they're like, oh, okay, that's yeah, fine. It's we're still going to tell that story as if it's fact though. <laughs> And now we go to 2012, where many have gathered in the streets to protest the Federal Reserve of America. One, two, three, abolish the Fed. Four, five, six, abolish the Fed. One, two, three. Our markets are like so constrained right now. You know, you got Obama appointed, Tim Geithner setting interest rates. Yuck, get rid of that. I agree, get rid of all of that. Why do we need some hierarchical and bureaucratic federal government controlling our monetary system? What we really need is democratically controlled economy to benefit everyone in distribution based on the principles of need rather than money. Yeah, the economy is already democratic. Your ballot is your dollars. It's people like Obama appointees at the Federal Reserve changing interest rates that are getting in the way of that. You can't just vote with your dollar. That's completely forgetting the inequality and the power structures that prop up this existing monetary system. These aren't equal monetary systems in which we all engage. They're monetary systems in which some people have more power over how money is created and used. I couldn't agree more. The some people you're referring to are government cronies and their fat cat friends skimming little bits off the top. This is a war, you know? I'm going to say it. This is a war. 1776, the same year the Wealth of Nations was released. 1776, we need to rise up against these top scrapers and bureaucrats, us producers, me and you. You know, I'm really skeptical of populist alliances with the far right in order to achieve so-called anti-elite or anti-authoritarian ends. But I think we can all agree that if we abolish the Fed, which was a necessary development in the capitalist monetary system, that it would destroy capitalism. So maybe today we can work together. And I totally disagree. I think that abolishing the Fed is going to not only strengthen capitalism, but make the freest, purest markets that work perfectly forever. Uh, So I totally disagree with you on that. But points of unity, we want to abolish the Fed. Let's do this. Okay, can work with you for now, but I really think you'll change your mind if you listen to this podcast episode. I have it right here. Can you, do you want to listen to it right now? In 2012, a podcast, there's not enough of those. Yeah, I'll I'll give that a listen. Yeah, yeah, just put those right in your ears. Yeah, I'm going to listen to this, but you have to read a really long book. Wealth of Nations? No, Naked Economics. Does it come on a wax cylinder by any chance, audiobook format? No one uses that format. I'll press play on my iPod. And so the two anti-Federal Reserve protesters were able to work together. And in their timeline, they actually did end up abolishing the Fed by 2017. 
So if any of you postmodern monetary theorists and metamodern monetary theorists from earlier are listening, take a clue. You don't have to have the same ends to work together. You don't have to share anything, really. Just, just do it. Just work together like these two folks did. I hope that you, person in 2012, enjoy the rest of this episode. Go back to the show. Stop. That's well, interesting. I've never listened to anything on wax cylinder before. Impressive, too, because one of these can only record about eight minutes of audio, so I'm not sure how that worked. But... It all fit. Hey, aren't these wax cylinders really fragile, like if you drop them? Oh, yeah, don't drop it. I accidentally oh, dropped well, it. well, we don't need that one. I just wanted to keep it as a memento. Listen to it. Well, you can always have the memento in your podcatcher. It's a bit less cool, but okay. Really an abstraction upon this physical item, which is the wax cylinder. Oh, do you mean like the way that capitalism developed increasingly abstract notions of value and money? Huh. I never thought about it that way, but I guess so. It's very similar. Huh. I never thought about it that way until you said, I guess so. Then it's... <laughs> And it started making sense. I'm still not thinking about it that way. Maybe we can get more abstract. Maybe we can make this whole podcast more abstract somehow. All right, now we'll pop out that wax cylinder. Can you believe the whole episode so far has been on that wax cylinder? Yeah, how did they do the sound effects? That was impressive. Yeah. Whoops, I dropped it. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, you got to really stop with that. I, I only mean... did it okay. once out of character. Imagine if someone drops the wax cylinder we're currently talking on. What will happen to us? And we'll pop out that cylinder. And I want to know what hap- their question. What happens to those voices? Yeah, so tiny you, disembodied. You already? Yeah. I mean, I don't care. They don't mean anything to me. Instead of just dropping this, I'm going to start a little fire here on the table and burn it, melt it. You can make some candles out of this. So when do we find out what happened to the people on the cylinder? I think we have to pop out this tape. And then those people will come back and explain it all, wrap it all together. No, no, it doesn't make any sense because that would mean that there was a circle, you know, a tape within it, a different recursive tape. We're not on a cylinder. We're humans. And now I'm going to pop out that wax cylinder. So what do you think? Burn it? Break it? Why are we so focused on destruction? Actually, do you want to see... What if we preserve this into the indefinite future and this becomes the only listenable audio recording from our time period. Maybe rather than destroying it, we should go to great lengths to preserving this one wax cylinder forever. I love it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, let's like wrap it up, put it in the freezer and make sure that this tape is going to last forever. It's never going to be damaged. We're going to keep it for future generations. Agree, but just to be clear, it is a wax cylinder. And Sorry, not did a I say tape. tape? You did say tape. And I'll pop out that tape. And that explains why we don't use wax cylinders anymore, because they're very fragile. And it brought up a lot of existential questions. People didn't really know how to deal with it. And so that's why we always use tapes in this utopia. Teacher? Yes. Teacher? Yep. My dad says that the people on the wax cylinder that were burned alive in the wax cylinder when the wax cylinder was burned... They could have been spared the agony of it, but then the people in the wax cylinder above them preserved that tape forever, so they burned in agony indefinitely. Is that true, teacher? Just try not to think about it too hard. Yeah, some philosophers think that, some disagree, but I say listen to our teaching assistant. You're not a real teacher? <laughs> it's just a thing we it's do. Hard, there's always a back and forth. Go ask the assistant. Oh, somebody please pop this tape out now. I'm going to pull this record off the turntable. All right, so what were we saying before the whole tape? We'll get back to the episode. 
Yeah. So, I mean, getting in a little bit overview of like the modern era of money is money is like created by banks through debt and through lending. So Um, this is the money equals debt stuff. Yeah, this is the money equals debt stuff, which is true, right? So when at the abolish the Fed protest, when they say this isn't money, this is debt, you can just say that's the same thing. Because that's one of the biggest ways that new money enters the economy is a bank gives out a loan of $100,000 that puts in digital money, the $100,000 is out there. And then in order for that money supply to shrink by that amount, that $1,000 has to be paid back plus interest. The original $1,000 is erased by the bank's digital system, but they keep the interest. So a bank gives you a loan of $100,000 to start a business. Theoretically, this is a story I'm telling again. Right. And everyone's perfectly rational. And everyone's perfectly (laughs) rational. So you have that $100,000 to spend on, you know, whatever, building your business. The bank puts in their balance sheets, that is a credit to them, not a credit of $100,000, but a credit of $100,000 plus interest that they are free to spend, right? Right. Because banks don't have like a vault of money they're going to go to and count how much money they have. They have a balance sheet, right? And then I'm going to put that in their balance sheet. As a credit, that's right. how much and, money they have. And if I understand this right, they actually don't take money out of, like, to give you the 100000 mm-hmm. They're not, like, removing 100000 from anything that they have. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's a creation process. Like, right. when they lend out money, the, that is new money being created. That's the other thing that it's related to the gold bug people and the, this whole sort of sphere of, like, critical of economics, conspiracy theory to leftism areas, the fractional reserve banking idea that you mm-hmm. can loan yeah. out many times the amount of reserve. Like you only need to carry a fraction, yeah. a reserve that's a fraction of the amount of money that you have or loan out. But you were saying, okay, so then you get paid back. Let's say you get 150000 back by the end. What was the thing you said? Like the 100000 gets nullified, but the 50000 is... That's my understanding, but that might be me trying to justify to myself that the bank shouldn't keep $100,000 they created out of nothing <laughs> and just assumed that it disappears like right. a time bank would. <laughs> like, but I don't actually know, to be honest. Yeah. I assume that it's... And I, I thought they just they just keep the full 150 k Yeah. Yeah. Because it was their 100 k to begin with. But, well, they just created the 100 k to begin with, right? I mean, they have money. They don't have physical paper money but right. they own that 100k they have to be able to own that money or it has to be listed as a credit in their balance sheet right but they, but <laughs> you know they don't but no they one did. actually has money we just have balance sheets yeah but, but like they didn't debit it from somewhere else to add it as a credit right like it just, they, it just so there's up. there's this whole you know double entry bookkeeping that i can't fully wrap my head around because i think i was sleeping during my like fucking microeconomics class because that shit is boring as fuck right but (laughs) yeah so it is listed as a debit somewhere okay that's different from my understanding i thought that when money when banks loan out money they were just yeah creating the money well the the stuff that's for sure definitely created is that extra fifty thousand interest because like i said this stuff talks about this stuff a lot and it's like a few years old in Mm. my brain now at this point but the way that it was framed with that was like the interest is the part that actually isn't created because you create the hundred thousand and then that's new money but like they owe you one hundred and fifty thousand back in the end so what this does is creates a system where everybody is always in debt because there's more money owed than money that actually exists. Actually, yeah, I think so. That fifty thousand dollars, that interest, is the price of creating new money. Right. And that price isn't paid by the banks; it's paid by the people taking out loans. It's paid by right, right. those in debt. You have to pay fifty thousand dollars in order for this a hundred thousand dollars to be created, 
which you have the power to spend. Right, and you have to scrounge that 50k up from somewhere. Right. Let's look this up, find it out, do a drop-in bit, get to the bottom of it, (laughs) and let me just say, if banks are allowed to create $100,000 out of nothing based on a fractional reserve to loan to someone to start a business, and when that guy pays them back the $100,000 plus interest, they get to keep it all... We need a fucking revolution. Oh, I mean, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I totally forgot to throw in the revolutionary. (laughs) I'm really excited because I'm about to find out whether or not the money that's loaned and created out of nothing, if the bank gets to keep that or not, because Aaron did the research. And this is what the revolution is predicated on, apparently. I, I did say if they get to keep it all, then we need a quote fucking revolution. And I stand by that. I'm going to bury the lead on this a bit. But just there was a bit of also confusion about whether when banks make the loan that is actually created money or if they debit it from somewhere else. So I'm reading from the Bank of England's money creation in the modern economy. They put it out in 2014. And this is a thing a lot of people quote from when explaining this stuff. Commercial banks create money in the form of bank deposits by making new loans. When a bank makes a loan, for example, to someone taking out a mortgage to buy a house, it credits their bank account with a bank deposit the size of the mortgage. At that moment, new money is created. Because bank deposits are IOUs, like they're saying, we will give you money for this because we have reserves. But earlier, you were talking about the fractional reserve thing and that the they could only lend out so much money based on how much reserves they have. So they say here, the second misconception, the first being, again, that they loan out money they actually have instead of creating it. The second misconception is that the central bank determines the quantity of loans and deposits by controlling the quantity of central bank money, the so-called money multiplier approach. In reality, neither are reserves a binding constraint on lending, nor does the central bank fix the amount of reserves that are available. So they can lend out as much as they feel will be profitable for them so that their new liabilities that they're creating when they make these loans, because they're saying, we'll pay these back, they're making new IOUs. And if they make too many that don't get paid back to them, they have too much liability and their equity is bad, and then they'll be in crisis. I'm explaining this like I understand it. People can trade those bank deposits with each other like their money. That's usually what we do now. We use debit cards. We send money to each other online. We trade bank deposits. We trade bank IOUs rather than trading the actual currency. So banks can create new IOUs whenever they want. They can create as much of it as they want. And when you pay back the loan, that money disappears. They so it's erase destroyed. It's destroyed. They erase the liability and the bank deposit from like their ledger. So they do destroy the money. They don't keep it. Does that mean revolution's not necessary? Are you going to stick with that? Well, I, let's be clear on what I said. I said, <laughs> if this is the case, we definitely need a revolution. I didn't say this is alone the threshold for revolution. There oh. could be other reasons for revolution. Let's spitball. We digitally create IOUs based on an ambiguous idea of like causing a problem if we don't repay the money to ourselves. Yeah, I don't know like if they just didn't create the liability on their ledger and just created the bank deposits. Other than inflation, is there a problem? It doesn't seem like there would be. I don't know what way it should be. But the whole thing just seems designed to be sort of like an impenetrable 
shuffle of papers from which massive wealth is given to a very small group of people because it's not hard to imagine a system where you could create money for social good explicitly to like distribute money based on need so like for example you need to stop climate change so you make money for that it's going to take a lot of money to to do these things yeah just gotta i barely know anything about this and i was already wrong twice in the recording i haven't even got to the second time i was wrong but i still think you can just create the deposits like solve climate change just make a big two trillion dollar fund and start solving climate change create the deposits this is the okay so you know there's sort of like the quantity theory of inflation like you introduce more money so the value of money goes down so if you got a total count of all the money that existed on earth how much money do we have around the world so it's a complicated question because there's all these different types of money but say you found a nice and because it's constantly being created and destroyed like every time you pay back a bit of a loan it's destroyed every time they make new loans it's created so there's no like consistent supply of money it's like there's there's rates of destruction and rates of creation always ongoing and what the bank can do is tweak the rate of creation by how much loans they're making it was just it was just sort of a like when i was reading this stuff like a weird psychedelic thought that there's no like fixed supply of money it's just this constant flux and we're dealing with rates of change and like alterations to the rates of change rather than did they create new money or did they add new money in or it's always happening it's just Mm -hmm. creating and destroying my point is is that if the quantity theory of money holds true, and I think what you're describing shows that the quantity of theory of money simply by itself doesn't really make any sense in that context if you're in this like churning, if money is like a system that's constantly churning. But if the quantity theory of money held true, then you'd be able to at any time just figure out how much money there is on earth, print exactly that much money, and double the prices of everything. So you'd effectively like tax half of all wealth across the board, and then you have half of all wealth in your hands to do anything. So you could uh, give some back to everyone to make sure that no one's below a standard of living. So like the poorest people in the world, they lose half their wealth. But since it's only a small amount of wealth, it's okay. Because then you could just like give them enough money to bring them up to some sort of medium, median, which would make them like super rich. Basically, just you could do like this thunderclap of money creation. I think this was mentioned on the show like super early on maybe is like an idea that I had. It makes like a common sense. It makes like a folksy sense, which is just like one day you'll have everyone's money is worth half and the government has half the money to solve climate change. And it's fair and nothing else changes. I mean, I could think of a lot of concerns people would have. Like what? But I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) I want to talk about the other thing I was wrong about. He's just saying that because he has absolutely no argument against the perfect idea. (laughs) He's like, oh, I got a really good critique, but know what? I really, mm, mm, you know, this is going to be a long episode. Maybe we should move on. The other thing I was wrong about, in addition to contradicting you when you were right and saying money was destroyed, and I was like, I don't think it is. The other thing I was wrong about was that the fact that they create the money but don't create the interest to pay the money means that there's always more debt than there is money. I was wrong about that because money circulates and banks spend money on various things and put money in people's bank accounts and the amount of money again if we were talking about it like there's a fixed quantity of money in the world even if there was more debt than there is money all those debts could theoretically still be paid back because you could pay your debt with the same money after the bank spent it somewhere and then that person paid it to you or whatever it's just logically possible so that particular argument i was making was inaccurate and banks do 
not create the interest, when you pay them back interest, that money isn't destroyed or it's like kind of destroyed, but then they create new money when they pay their employees or pay interest on bank accounts and stuff like that, that money is created and that flow of creation has to be less than the flow that they're quote unquote destroying when the interest payments come in because it's their equity again. It's all confusing, but the general idea is supposed to be that yes, when they pay back a loan, the money's destroyed. When you pay back interest, that's the bank's money that they use to pay for stuff in addition to their other income streams, obviously. Yeah. So the whole like internet conspiracy theory thing of like structurally, you know, people have to go bankrupt because they could never pay the money back. That's not true because of the churning of the yeah, money. Yeah. At least it's, it's not like a logical because they create more debt than money, you could never pay it back. There are other reasons why structurally people have to go bankrupt in this system. It's just not that like kind of intuitively appealing argument that I made. So I've got a new statement. If the banking system is completely impenetrable and it can only be described in a way that would confuse and enrage easily 90% or more of the Earth's population, if there's a small group of people who get to be massively, massively wealthy, have private islands, private jets, while others are starving, while others toil day after day for low wages and have their human rights violated, if all those things, actually just the last part, we need a revolution. Nice save. I was about to call you a counter-revolutionary. <laughs> no, not me. <laughs> no, no, nothing uh, weird or funny. But, um, <laughs> just a normal revolutionary. Yeah. And uh, one of the real ones, yeah. And just, Good. <laughs> I've just got to go to the washroom. We'll see you soon. Thank you. <sighs> Splash water on my face. <laughs> God damn it, man. He's not on to you. He's not. You're just going to go out there, be a regular leftist. No one suspects a thing. It's all good. It's all good. <sighs> okay, I'm going to call my handler. I'm going to call my handler. CIA, how can I help you? Can you transfer me to Mockingbird Department 161? Mockingbird 161, yeah, I'll patch you through. <sighs> You've reached the CIA. Hey, Agent 15. Everything well undercover. You're sending us lots of great information. I have to report I still have no reason to think that anyone suspects something. Has that propaganda campaign you're doing it's a, a podcast? Yeah, I try to do an episode every week. Oh, man, that's a grueling schedule, making that CIA propaganda one every week. No wonder you're calling me looking for support. Because I know you didn't say it, but I can hear it in your voice. You need some support right now. I'm here for you, man. Thanks. It feels good to know that on the other end of my line, my CIA handler has got my back. Now I can go back to secretly infiltrating leftism to spread the CIA's ideas behind it all, as usual. But I can't imagine what it's like to be embedded with those people. If you just want to come swing by Langley, we'll have some brews, we'll throw some darts. You know, you can hang out with the boy, just talk to some sane, normal people. It'll be a good, wholesome time, you know, if you need to decompress. We're always there for you. Just, you know, say you're taking a mental health day and we'll send a copter. Thanks, 15. You make me feel like a safe and protected boy out here. Yeah, that's how we want you to feel. I mean, after all, we're all just crying, grasping babies on the inside, aren't we? We all just want to feel protected and safe. Too true. I guess that's the whole goal of the CIA project, right? Is to get back to the feeling of being held. 
Like when you're a baby and your entire universe is the feeling of being held. Absolutely, yeah, that's exactly what the CIA is bringing into the world. I wouldn't have thought to frame it that way, but now that you say it, that seems really incontrovertibly true. Something everyone should think about the CIA. All right, well, uh, time to go back to creating my not-leftist-enough CIA propaganda, which is created to confuse and destroy the left. Bye. I'm going to splash water on my face again. Just end the sketch, man. You don't need to find any sort of specific ending. It's just, it just doesn't need to end on a high note. Just get out there and return to the conversation with the guest, Franz, about money. <sighs> okay, guys, my hands are super washed. I was just washing my hands in there. Or what were we saying? Yeah, so if we want to talk about the 2008 financial crisis, you know, what could possibly go wrong with this system of banks having all the power to set the price of money and determine how much of it they make and how much of it they sell without limitations? What could possibly go wrong there? Well, yeah, and and let's even go a step further is like, let's start trading, quote, products that are made up of combinations of unrelated balance sheets, which you can then buy and own this abstract sort of thing that connects to all these other Excel sheets somewhere else on the computer and all of them, they just like better programs than Excel. (laughs) I hope hope so. But yeah. And some of the products are just literally like the product is a bet. Like I'm betting that this asset will appreciate in value or I'm betting that it won't. I'm betting that this business will go out of business. And like, that's also a product that you can buy. Mm -hmm. We've taken one 50th of the value of 50 more mortgages that are in the same principle. We've combined all those one fiftieth together. And then if you buy it, you're betting that all those mortgages will be paid off. Yeah. And who are these mortgages being given to? Like, you know, a lot of people would promote there being regulation of these financial institutions that are giving out loans so that, I don't know, maybe they give loans out to people that are actually going to pay them back. But banks have repeatedly shown that they would rather operate in this like sort of short term interest of like, get this money now, make as many loans as possible, give predatory rates to people that we know won't be able to afford them back. And if for some reason this doesn't work out, well, we'll just get bailed out. So like there's no long term harm either way. Yeah, Yeah. right, right. So might as well take the short-term benefit because, you know, what's the drawback? Well, and the, and the other banks are doing it. Yeah. So if we don't, then they'll have better short-term profits than us. They'll get more banking customers. Our bank might go out of business. Some of the richest people in our society are the people who invest in stock markets just like to game them, right? Like the finance sector has exploded over time into a much, much larger piece of the economy. I've heard it described as like parasitic. It gives disproportionate amount of wealth to people who are not really creating any value and also we got this brain drain of like really intelligent people going into the world of like finance and like shuffling papers around to generate huge amounts of wealth because there's just certain ways you can do that when there's like actually pressing issues out there that we like need to there's like wall street finance guys that like could be helping cure cancer instead but there's such a clear incentive, like figure out how to game this system. There's like a ton of money here for this like yeah. weird paper trading game, like this digital like shuffling of things back and forth. You just need to start with a bunch of money and then you can get more. I got caught on the abstraction thing because like you start with this gold, this thing, and like some layers of abstraction from that are really necessary if you want the system to function because it's silly to tie if it to, to gold. If you want the system to function. Yeah, if you want the system to function. But then you function get... Function for who? <laughs> yeah. But then you get to this situation right now where like 
they've layered abstraction on top of abstraction and you have all these like strange commodities and like trading entities that like collateralized debt obligations collateralized debt obligations. it's a great one yeah it's like it means something down the line eventually but it's so removed from anything material or physical that it's like yeah, I mean, like, that's the entire feel of economics is just, like, studying things to these, like, increasing levels of abstraction to the point where they're so disconnected from the real economy. You know, I would argue that the real economy should be based on, like, people's needs, right? But the study of economics is so divorced from anything that's actually necessary in any meaningful degree, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, you would think it would be the study of how to make sure everybody has enough of all the things they need. That would be economics. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> what our study about, our objective hard science is about, is now first imagine sort of a grid pattern world full of perfectly rational people Done. making widgets that don't serve any purpose other than to be carriers of people's subjective desires <laughs> Great subje subjective desire widgets, grid world, perfect, <laughs> <laughs> scientific. So we're going to use this pattern grid world full of rational people manufacturing and trading these objects that serve no purpose except to be commodities called widgets. We're going to use that map framework as sort of our roadmap for betting the future of humanity. Perfect. It's what you do in biology. Say you want to study the biology of a human body. You take a human body, you don't look at it, and you imagine okay, a grid. No, imagine, get a grid and draw a heart. Now, we all know that the heart produces love. So imagine <laughs> the, the heart is perfectly loving. Well, making this, sense to me so far. This is, now, this is the basis of biology. Yeah, the perfectly loving heart. <laughs> now, that's how you do science. You start at first principles that you have no basis for, and you make up a really nice story about it. <laughs> and then there on the graft is where they all die. <laughs> Like, I have a friend that has created this completely fictional town in his mind and can hold it literally all in one place. And he knows, like, these are all the bus routes and these are is how often it stops here and there. And these are all the neighborhoods and this is the population. And I don't fucking know. It keeps it all in his mind. But it, that reminds me of the study of economics of, like, it's this completely fictional thing that doesn't map on reality. And we're all, like, trying to see who can understand this thing that doesn't exist the best. Yeah, because you have to understand it because there's all these people trying to, like act as if it's true and then like making huge decisions in governments that like affect everybody because they're like well our cute story said that it would turn out like this so then you have to go and like understand all their cute stories and abstractions and graphs so you can be like no like don't we just need to make enough things for everybody find ways to get them to people distribution talk about actual stuff no? Well, no and to give them some credit i mean we're talking about it it's like obviously it's unintelligible and obviously there's a bunch of weird fiction baked into it but then also somehow at the same time it works for certain things like it works for we've got a functional society right now like it's obviously <laughs> dysfunctional it's obviously it's, it's a very dysfunctional society in a lot of ways but at the same time like you can't sleep on the productive capacity of capitalism. It's really pulled off some pretty incredible things over the years. It's uh, sure produced a lot of widgets, whatever <laughs> good that does. <laughs> there's, a, there's a ton of widgets in this room, actually. Mm. We're speaking into widgets. Absolutely. We've sent widgets to the stars. Widgets have walked on the moon. <laughs> Hi there. Welcome to the Aaron Bank. My name is Aaron. Is everyone who works at this bank called Aaron? No, no. I'm just 
That's the just Aaron. a coincidence. Yeah. Oh, yes. the Aaron. The Aaron, yeah. So I'd like to please withdraw 50,000 Aaron points. What, so you have 50,000 Aaron points in your account already? Oh, no, don't you create Aaron points for people anymore? Oh, I do, yeah, but then you need to take out a loan. All so. right, let's do it. Okay, great. Yeah, I always so. hear people talk about it as creating. They, they never say loan. It's a new word to me, but I'm into it. I feel like it really helps clarify things. If I'm going to make a whole bunch of new IOUs and give them to you, then we also got to create a bunch of UOMEs and I'll put them over there. And those are a liability to me. So I'm taking out 50,000 IOUs, but then every time you give me those IOUs, you have to put some UOMEs in a special place? Yeah. How many Aaron points exist? Who knows? Constant flux. New ones being created. When you, If you pay me back, I'll destroy the IOUs you give me and I'll destroy the UOMEs. So that all balances out in the end. Except for the extra IOUs you give me for, insur- for interest. That's how I keep the roof over my head. The Aaron Bank here. Doesn't it get tiring destroying all the money that was loaned out and destroying all of the corresponding liabilities? Yeah, shoveling all the IOUs and the UOMEs into the furnace as they do every night from the day's work is backbreaking work. Truly, but... When can I expect to receive the IOUs? Well, I do have to write them all out by hand. Oh, you poor thing. Yeah, no, this wrist gets cramped. But it is worth it in order to be the one person who controls all money and has my standing armies in force that all world taxes be collected in Aaron points. And You poor thing. Here's some Aaron points for your trouble. Take your time. Let me know when it's ready. Sure, yeah. You can pick up probably the first batch on Friday. You no, know, we're but lucky. Yeah, thank you for this. Sorry, I almost forgot to thank you for the tip. Because you got your own standing army doesn't mean you can be rude, right? Absolutely. All right, great. Well, there is a line, so if you... I don't know what I was thinking. Sorry, here's some errand points for your trouble. Yeah, I do have the most of them. But you also have the liability, and a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, there's a lot of UOMEs. If people saw my UOME room, they'd be screaming in despair. Please never show anyone that UOME room. No one would want to hear those blood-curdling shrieks echoing out across Wrongtown, the screams and wails of the poor soul who opened the door to the UOMI room. You have it worse than all of us, friend. I'll be on my way. There are some ideas about how we can take this system that is so not only unintelligible, but like the power to create and control money lies with private banks as it currently exists. So there are ideas around trying to democratize the money supply and democratize what like money is put towards by regulating the power of banks to create money within certain confines and giving people democratic control over like what money can and cannot be spent on and also making the federal government be a more primary driver in money creation by taking out loans in order to fund social programs from the left more social democratic perspective you know that would mean social programs it could also be co-opted by a more militaristic approach that is just going to use it you know to support military and policing and other sorts of like state welfare programs money spent to like reinforce the power of the state But the government, which, you know, in theory has some degree of democratic check on it, being this primary driver of money creation, that we can somehow, like, democratize the money supply in a way that corrects some of the most egregious problems with this private money creation system. Is this MMT you're talking about? Yeah, I think this, yeah, draws from this field of economics or this theory within economics of modern monetary theory, which I am not by any means an expert in, but have like a decent understanding of it. I've got a question. Does anyone know why we always have money for war, but we never have money for the poor? 
Because the government can create money and it wants to create money for war. Could they do that for the poor or would that break the whole system? Oh, they could do that for the poor. What? (laughs) I mean, you know, you look at the quote unquote gold age of capitalism and they did do that kind of for a while. Social programs of the like 40s to 60s or however long that time period was. New Deal stuff. New Deal era. Yeah, exactly. Social democracy. Like it functions pretty well. I mean, there's lots of flaws with it. It still is fundamentally predicated on exploitation, domination, hierarchy. In the U.S. context of social democracy, it was dependent on U.S. imperialism, racial hierarchy, gendered hierarchy. So, you know, there's lots of flaws with that, but... No, it wouldn't break the system. Hmm. With the gov- Which I guess is, is part of the flaw, actually, I think, is that it wouldn't break the system. Because I think we do need to break capitalism. This democratizing, potent- like using the sort of systems we have now to have slightly more democratic control over money, that's not a kind of post-capitalist vision mm-hmm. in any sense you're talking no. about, right? Is there a post-capitalist version of money that you can think of? I mean, I think... Like the Paracon stuff? Is that... Yeah, personally, I, you know, am fond of the whole classless, moneyless society thing. But I I think there are ways in which you can conceptualize, you know, a money economy that isn't capitalist and is potentially like a route towards a more ideal utopian communism or whatever. Like, I'm not going to commit to that route being a good one, but it's worth exploring, I think. Something I think often confuses non-radical leftists in conversations is that when they hear us talking shit about capitalism, they think that we're inherently always talking about completely abolishing money and that's beyond the scope of their imagination. Mm. So it sounds like we're completely incoherent loons who are just like, well, I just get rid of all the money and everything will work still. And they're like, well, I think the money is doing something. And we're like, ah, punching yourselves in the face. (laughs) And I do think it's obviously theoretically possible to create a world that is moneyless as well as classless. It's also possible to maybe get rid of the class part, but keep money and have a more fair sort of economy in a sense where there's currency and exchange and that it's... Or money that doesn't have currency. Yeah, yeah, the the weird mindfuck example of money without currency. (laughs) Yeah, so those examples of participatory economics, some sort of economy that relies on money with a different basis of value, I guess, is kind of what most of those are getting at. The basis of value being labor, being time, and that being put on like an equal basis. Like this CEO would have to actually do that many hours worth of labor to get that money. They wouldn't be able to exploit others for their yeah that that would be the fundamental thing right like you'd have to remove the ability to have the exploitation Mm -hmm. relationship where you can make profit off of other people's labor Mm -hmm. like exploitation relation nation (laughs) because yeah so john locke was one of the first english philosopher political economist to come up with like the labor theory of value like money is only created through labor and the way you get money is by doing labor it's like okay well what about capitalists that are exchanging more money it's like well you just buy someone else's labor now it's yours like that's just something you can do yeah oh yeah that's funny that's like oh i'm not extracting value from your labor i bought your labor i'm extracting value from my labor right it belongs to me (laughs) because that's something i can just do i can alienate your labor from you and just apply it to me right oh i didn't jeff bezos works so hard (laughs) (laughs) all that labor that he owns that is his labor yeah (laughs) 
putting in all these hours, like thousands of hours a day. Backbreaking stuff, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like really intense conditions. Do all that simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Bezos' labor is amazing. The way he works down his labor for us like that is so selfless. <laughs> the way that he takes all that labor power that he has and he's just, he just pushes it to the limit, even though it's going to mean diminishing returns as the labor carriers break down. But he yeah, just cares just so much about getting us our products in two out, days. Swap out those labor carriers. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of episodes, I'm usually like trying to, you say a few things that kind of sum everything up, but this is just so confusing and there's so mm. many things. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to sum it up. And like, yeah, well. So money controls lessons. every aspect of our lives and we can barely describe the basic premises of it. <laughs> <laughs> And even if we do conceptualize the basic premises as we're taught to understand them in schools, they do not correspond at all to reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's confusing. We should just blow it all up. That's Fight Club, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's confusing. Let's blow it all up. <laughs> well, it's literally there's another yeah, conclusion. Yeah, yeah. They're blowing up financial institutions yeah. or something. It's, it's not the worst idea. Yeah, I think the worst idea is making a shit statue out of shit. <laughs> Hey, if you can't come to a philosophical conclusion at the end of an episode, just call back something from the beginning. <laughs> make a poo joke. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to make a statue out of poo, at least make it look like something. Yeah. Like a, I mean, like a person or a mushroom. It's or a, the deeper representation behind making a shit statue out of shit. It's, right. you know. Yeah, I don't the understand art. Yeah, uh, gestalt. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Friends. Yeah, thank you it's a for pleasure having as me. Always. I guess ultimately money and capitalism are a very complex way of preventing people from making shit statues out of shit. <laughs> yeah, and just have the accidental side effect of also preventing some people from having enough basic resources to live. Yeah, and the... The real reason is that shit <laughs> thing. They're trying to fix that problem. <laughs> who's going to buy it, man? <laughs> In a world without this, that everyone would just be making these just statues. Naturally. Like, what do you mean? There's You're no way democratic planning could solve that issue at all, and it's inconceivable, really. <laughs> Human nature, when left alone without capitalism, is not just making shit statues out of shit, but like throwing their hands up in the air and being like, "What? <laughs> like, <laughs> I deserve to be paid for this? Like, that's just naturally underneath the surface." Yeah. Oh, maybe one like final point I would like to throw in there is something we've talked about about you know whether it be democratizing the money system as it currently exists or creating some sort of other participatory money like, you know, these labor vouchers or moving beyond a society where distribution is organized on the basis of money. These all kind of represent a shift towards like greater democratization of the economy and greater like democratic planning over the economy. So there's this like myth in capitalism that things aren't planned, that it's the spontaneous action by rational entities like right. operating their best interests and there's no sort of like collaboration. And I think we really need to move past that narrative of like that's the only way the economy can function and recognize that whether it's done through money or through some other mechanism, like the solution is through like democratizing the economy. Right. And, and, it's, and it's never functioned that way. They've always had to plan things with mm. like government impositions because you need to rein in all those rational and irrational <laughs> people uh -huh. uh, just interacting because it doesn't work and it's never worked. And yeah. And, and, you know, one presented solution is like, a central planning model where like a smaller group of people are, are making all those decisions. And I think kind of the most advanced people, right? The most advanced people make those decisions. You know, you know, that's, that's one proposed solution <laughs> that I won't speak on too much, but I, but oh, well, giving 
access for like those who are actually affected by the economy, which is literally everyone, to have a say over the economy is the only way to assure that the economy actually does work for everyone. One more thing. We recorded this with Franz a couple weeks ago, but now Franz has launched their own podcast. Doomer versus Bloomer is the name of Franz's podcast. They just got one episode out so far, and I just listened to it. It's really great. Franz is really great. Beginning is a little bit slow, but if you're feeling it's a bit slow, keep listening because the rest of the episode is really, really good. And hey, listen to our first episode. Friends is way ahead of the game. Yeah, honestly, their first episode is better than our first episode. I haven't listened to ours in a long time, but I'll just make that as a blanket statement. And actually, just on the Doomer versus Bloomer premise, which I think is really interesting, is the way that we talk about like boomers, zoomers, Generation X. The Doomer-Bloomer paradigm is like an age-agnostic grouping of people in a similar framework where... Doomers are people who are pessimistic about our situation with like the ecological social crisis and bloomers are people who are not blindly optimistic, but dedicated to the long term effort of actualizing utopia. So that's the tension at the heart of the show. Yeah. France plays the bloomer in case that wasn't obvious. It's great. Open your podcatcher right now. Doomer versus bloomer. Go check it out. Do you want to do our Patreon ask? <laughs> is that weird that, that sounds fun we hate doing it so if you want to do it that would be great hey beautiful geniuses did you know that it costs a lot of money to live and that the wrong boys actually need money to live and that one of the ways they make money is through patreon subscribers so you should go to seriouslywrong.com just click on the patreon and button. click on the patreon button and donate like i mean money's fake donate as much as it as you want, preferably more. If you need to start a bank to create new money in order to donate more money, you should totally do that by whatever means necessary. Become a Patreon supporter so you can have access to patron-only episodes and join the fucking cool Beautiful Genius Facebook group you only have access to if you're a patron. And I'm in there, so I think it's pretty cool. Tell them to take out a $100,000 loan, give it to us, and then declare bankruptcy. Take out a $100,000 loan, donate it to Seriously Wrong, and then declare bankruptcy. It's a foolproof plan, absolutely no flaws. It'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, it's just like five people did that. We'd be be on easy street. Can you imagine what a glorious day that would be? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> check your paypal account and it's like it's just like six seven years that's off of your credit you can start building again yeah. it's fine especially if you're young it's really six seven years out of your life yeah you just need to get that hundred thousand dollar loan first that's the problem mm. anyway i'll let you figure that out oh hey also we did it we we started commodifying our ideology to surrender to the totalizing logic of capitalism you can go on our seriouslywrong.com website and hit the shop button to buy a t-shirt that represents the values expressed in the show previously not commodities now commodities that's a great widget <laughs> Yeah, those t-shirt widgets. And the best part is, it costs less to produce the shirts than we're charging for them. (laughs) So in that process, you help support the show. (laughs) I wish, like, Walmart sold stuff to us that way. Hey, we just really want your support. You know, we're selling this to you for more than it's worth, but we'd really appreciate it if you supported us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It'd make us feel really good. (laughs) I'd like it if Walmart was producing, like, a 
leftist pod and like the whole <laughs> edifice of Walmart was just to support the leftist podcast. That's the only reason it exists is to like <laughs> It's like Emma Goldman's ice cream shop. Have you heard about that? No. Uh, apparently she like helped run her own an ice cream shop or something and was just funneling money into like random anarchist organizing. That's awesome. Didn't the the spook guy what was Sterner? Sterner? Yeah, yeah didn't Sterner. Didn't <laughs> didn't, didn't Sterner start like an egoist milk distribution I think so. business? <laughs> that immediately failed. It failed, but then like a Christian group took his same model and was able to make it work because they weren't egoists. <laughs> Egoism destroyed. Egoist milk distribution. I don't even know what that looks like. Yeah, like how it differs from Christian milk distribution. seriously <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Seriously Wrong, Franz goes into the Temple of God and overthrows the tables of the money changers. Yeah, that's some nice money you have there. That's oh, do you want to change nice. it? Yeah, let's change with Here yours. Here we go. And change. Nice. Hey, hey. Oh, come on. Table. You flipped it. We were Exclusive money. control of public money must not be in the hands of the government in power or the state apparatus. Neither public nor private finance are free of embezzlement or corruption. Creation of both public and commercial money needs to be transparent and accountable. Economic democracy must be much wider than the government in power. Okay, geez. Yeah, it's a little weird, okay, with this whole thing. Are you going to help us pick this up or kind of rude? They're not going to help us pick it up. Just Okay. Freaking dickhead. It's quoting Mary Meller at us, like, heard this shit before. Sounds like a freaking passage from the Verso book, The Production of Money. And pedophore ass sounded motherfucker. <laughs> I don't even think she's a communist. She's not a communist? No. Oh my god. Yeah. And we read from her Yikes. book? Yikes, yeah. Cancelled. We're all cancelled. Cancelled. Episode over.